Hi, I'm Maria Thea Harris, or Velosos, and it's ASG Monday featuring Kenneth D. King. Now grab a cuppa and relax with us. So Organised Style Podcast acknowledges traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. A big sponsor shout out goes to our two podcast friends and sponsors, the Australian Sewing Guild, who has been our Monday Daily Series regular, is now a sponsor of Sew Organised Style Podcast. Go to ozsew.org to check out the online workshops, sew-alongs, skills library and more. Our second sponsor is Tatiana's School of Couture as she launches it online. Go to her website to see her new online sewing classes and patterns. Welcome back to Sew Organised Style Podcast. Good news for Kenneth D. King fans. The Australian Sewing Guild online workshop about couture strap seam construction with Kenneth D. King on the 14th of November will be recorded. If you've registered for this class, you'll have access to the recording for two weeks up to the 28th of November. For those attending the live event, you'll be able to refresh your memory and practice the technique. Anyone not able to attend on the 14th will still get the chance to watch the recording while you'll miss the opportunity to ask questions in real time. So let's get into our chat with Kenneth e. King. So hi, how you doing? I'm good, and you? I'm doing well. So here we are in the time of COVID. Oh my God. Kenneth, thank you so much for coming on to So Organised Style Podcast. My pleasure. Really grateful that you've given me this time and our listeners your time. So what do you want to know? I've admired how you have made the best of your situations through craft. Mm -hmm. And I think from listening to your podcast and from seeing what you're doing now, would it be fair to say that making Barbie clothes was probably one of the first crafts that you did to get through what was happening around you at the time? Mm -hmm. Yes, actually, when I was growing up, Barbie was sort of my escape. And, you know, as you heard in the podcast, my mother made some unfortunate choices. And we were sort of left to cope with those choices. And so the thing that kept me from alcohol and drugs, I think, I know this may sound crazy, is I made things. I had a dollhouse I was working on. I made troll doll clothes. I made Barbie clothes. And I started, this was, oh, I want to say 2019. I was making Barbie clothes for my niece in Australia. And New York Magazine emailed and said, we love what you're doing. We want you to duplicate some looks for the collections for an article we're doing. And I was kind of off and running. And what I found is, you know, it's, there is a story, you know, you probably, if you follow me on Instagram, you know, like right now, Crazy Bella is in the middle of a, a scandal, you know, and I have people sort of asking me, are you okay? And what I explain is this keeps the panic attacks away not to sound too dramatic, but there are times that I look at what's going on in the world and I understand that, okay, nothing I can do right now to change it. I just have to hunker down and do the right thing and wear the mask and all of that. 
but there are days when nothing else will do but going in and making Barbie clothes. And so this whole story that I'm pushing forward is, it's part of that because Barbie, when I was growing up, was she had a life. She was 27. She drove a convertible. She lived in a big city. She went to the opera, the theater, and restaurant. She only owned evening clothes. There was a backstory then to get me out of the real world then. And so the story now is sort of my way of getting out of the real world now. So craft has been my salvation, I think, throughout my life. And then craft has also connected you with people that you may not have had the opportunity to connect with in the past as well. Yes, that, and I've been very fortunate because, you know, I've been able to connect with rich and famous people, but also people who love craft. One of the things I discovered years ago, a friend of mine used to invite me to all these fancy parties in San Francisco. And one time we went to this party in Tiburon and the guy had just renovated the house and he invited all of the people who worked on the renovation. And then he invited all the fancy guests and everyone kind of coalesced in two separate groups. And I wanted to hang out with the people who had done the renovation because, you know, I was asking about, okay, how did you get that railing to do that? And what kind of finishes this? And my friend was getting really upset with me because she brought me there to meet the other people. And I wasn't terribly interested in them. They were not that interesting. They were all talking about gossip. You know, and I'm, I'm a good gossip, but they weren't as interesting as the craftspeople who had actually created this interior. I feel very fortunate that my craft has opened doors to talk to people like that. This isn't the same, but I've got a nephew who he loves coming up to see what I do when I sew because he wants to be in the future a builder and he's interested in the how did you do it which sounds kind of like why you were more interested in, in the builders, the renos. Well, I really do think that there's a lot of crossover. If you understand how something goes together, you know, there's specifics, garment, construction, building a cabinet, building a house, but there is an order that it proceeds. My husband does interior design and he's working on this bathroom for this gal on the Upper East Side. And he's telling me about this contractor that the owner of the place wanted this specific contractor because all her friends had him. And this guy, I mean, he was telling me like, well, he's painting the walls before he sealed the stone, you know, and, and I'm, I'm just no. saying, no, that's not how you do it. You know, because his whole thing, it's sort of like a garment. This has to happen first, then this, then this, then this. And he's like trying to sew the buttons on when he should be fusing the interfacing. You know, I could see why he would be interested in how it goes together and how you get there because the logic is the same. And I think that's what I, I'm fascinated with about it because a lot of people don't know this, but I did drywall as my first job when I was 13 years old. You know, so I've done some construction work. You know, drywall sheetrock. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, my mother's second husband owned the Sands Motor Hotel on Route 66 in Oklahoma City. If you look it up, you can see the postcard is there and it's hard to see in the postcard, but the swimming pool was shaped like a mermaid and I'm not making that up. And so Route 66, when I-40 came in, Route 66 traffic kind of shut down. So he was converting the motel into apartments and that is when I, they got married and I showed up on the scene and I was free labor. So that whole summer I did drywall. That was what I did. And so people find that hilarious that I know how to do that, but I do. It's all the same. And your hands are okay now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I you know, I, my husband and I sometimes go up to this summer camp upstate New York, and they have these volunteer weekends. And there was one weekend that we were building a goat barn. 
and building chicken coops. And I had slammed my index finger in a door and I had that ugly bruise. So what I did is I got the Sally Hansen stick on nail polish and I put one and and it was houndstooth. I put one there and then I put one on my ring finger to make it look intentional. And so here we were, you know, we were up on the top of the goat barn with the power drills, drilling the sheet metal on and everyone was looking at us and we were doing our things. And at, at the end, people were sort of laughing that we actually knew what the business end of a drill was. And I said, I put the roof on the goat barn, I built the chicken coop, and I never chipped my polish. That's been creative. Yeah. And stylish. On Sunday on Instagram, you put the wonderful shoes up. Yeah. Well, now, some of them are not mine. Some of them are shoes I would like to have. But I do have quite a few shoes, and I've been collecting since college. So, yes, Sunday shoes. Love the shoes. Shoes and accessories. I tell my students... Put your money in good accessories because you'll never have to worry about your figure changing. That's very true. Yeah. Never thought about that, did you? No, no, no. Sorry. I shouldn't be thinking like this. <laughs> <laughs> the coats. Yes. I love the coats that you've always come up with. You've used textiles that people probably wouldn't even look at once mm-hmm. as a coat. Yeah. Are you thinking specifically of the carpet coat? Well, the carpet coat is one. Yes. And then there's the jacket that you made out of the pieces of fabric that yes. you did. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the button jacket, which yes. if, if it ever goes missing, I've got it. Yes. Well, it's that jacket weighs 30 pounds. I kid you not. Yes. It's fun to wear, but it's exhausting to wear. But, you know, when I wear it, by golly, I look good. And that is the most important thing. When I worked on the carpet coat, because Susan Calgie's husband is a carpet dealer, and she gave me this pair of Colleen rugs. Now, I have no floor space in my place. I just don't. I don't have any room for it. So I asked her, okay, would this be sacrilege to cut up and make into a coat? And she said, nah, these are not the good ones. These are just pretty. And I said, okay. So when I was making this coat, oh, my God, the sleeve was the hard part because, Mm. you know, it's a sleeve. And I was saying to someone, oh, my God, it was like sewing carpet. Because you know what? It was sewing carpet. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was a fun coat. I don't wear it very often, but, you know, every now and then I'll bring it out. And someone will say, is that made of carpet? Why, yes, it is. They're very observant. Yes. And then the, the hair coats, that, that's not real hair. That is fake hair. That's Dynell. Mm-hmm. And the colored one, I call that the clown hair coat. You know, it's one of those coats that the first time I wore it, I had to wear, I wore it to a photo shoot for Threads Magazine because they wanted to get a photo of me in it because I was doing blog posts on the process. And it's kind of heavy, but so I thought, I don't want to just carry it in a bag because I was meeting someone for dinner afterwards. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to wear the damn thing over there because it was two blocks from here. And I figured, because there were two road crews, and I was thinking, okay, if anyone's going to make the rude remark, it's going to be these guys. And both groups, I walked by, they all said, hey, great coat. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. So, you know, part of it is just wearing it like it's the most normal thing in the world. Yeah, so I wore it, got photographed in it. I've worn it a couple, three times since then. Yeah, you know, it's fun to have. And they're really great pieces, quite unique. And thankfully, you can wear warm coats in New York. We can't really wear them that much here in Sydney. Yes. You know, I'm sincerely hoping with what's going on, I shouldn't have listened to the news before I before I signed in because, you know, I'm I'm just looking at what's going on in the United States and I say to the world, I'm sorry. But, you know, I'm looking at, because one of the things I'm missing about all of this is getting dressed up. 
there's a joy. And see, this is, you know, a lot of people, I don't know if they don't get it or they weren't taught about it because my mother was a lot of things, but she was stylish. And she used to say, you know, people are going to look at you. You got to give them something to look at. You know, they have to look at you, make it look, make it work, make it work. And so, you know, there's a thing about who do I want to be today? And it usually starts with the shoes. I work up from there. I mean, there's the whole thing. Okay, what jewelry, what watch, what fragrance, what glasses, you know, the whole bit. And that's not something I've gotten to do that much. I'm sincerely hoping that somehow it calms down a little bit so that I can actually get dressed again, because that's the two things I miss from this are going to the gym and getting dressed up. What I was going to ask was, is there another way for you to get dressed up? And what I'm thinking about is, at the moment, are you teaching online? You know, you, you just have to look good from the waist up. And you know, there's, there's a whole thing, because see, in other parts of the country, you are what you drive. People, that's what you see, is what you drive. But in New York, we're all pretty much on the street looking at each other. And there's this whole thing. There's this thing. You can be walking down the street and someone will be approaching you. And there's that little split second where your eyes kind of meet. It's like, yeah, looking good. Yeah, that was good. And that's not something you can really do online. I know it's going to come back. But, you know, right now, it's what it is. And I just, this is all part of, okay. We just have to make more Barbie clothes. And believe it or not, people are ordering. A commission I had earlier in the year, you may have seen it on Instagram. I had a gal, I called it the girl singer dresses. And this lady emailed me and she sent a photo of her mother. Her mother was an entertainer in Japan after World War II. And it was a photo of her mother in her entertaining cause. She was a singer. And she said, could you reproduce this? And I said, why? I think I could. And then it was kind of funny. She emailed me and she said that her granddaughters are fighting over who was going to get it when she died. And I said, <laughs> I mean, what a conversation. But I said, well, you know, I can make two. And so all of the embellishment on that, at the time, it was rickrack. But you don't have rickrack in one-sixth scale. So I had to embroider all of that rickrack. So I made three dresses. So I had two that were really good, one I could keep. Oh, it took forever. Oh, my God. It was so much fun, but it took, it took forever. But the dress, the muslin, that was seven muslins. Because you think, oh, three muslins, but, you know, on that scale, you have to make more. Well, I think what our listeners will probably get out of just hearing that story is that you've done seven muslins on Barbie. So to yeah. do seven muslins on yourself is okay. Yeah. If you want a really good result. Well, see, I'm for it. I don't understand why people don't make muslins. What I say is, if you don't make a muslin, your fashion fabric is your muslin. And do you want to take the chance of ruining that fabric? In my world, it's just what you do. Some years ago, I read, this is a book on Galliano. This is some years ago. And they said that he made a minimum of three and sometimes up to six before they cut fabric. So, you know, muslin, it's what you do. Right. I do a pattern three times and I use my fashion fabric as my muslin. Mm -hmm. And from what you've said, I'm actually wasting that. Well, it depends. There are sometimes, you know, because what I found is if I'm making a garment, even after I made the muslins, by the third time I got it nailed. But there are certain things that, okay, you know, if you need to take that seam out and move it a little bit, that's all good. You can do that in your fashion fabric. But the big, huge, catastrophic things that you're never going to be able to save, use cheap fabric for that. Don't waste your good fabric. So I think 
that the effort that you've gone to, those pieces are museum pieces. I have pieces in the Oakland Museum in California, the Dio Museum in San Francisco, the LA County Museum in Los Angeles, and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And what's really nice, it's nice to be in museum collections because, you know, generally, I was talking to a museum curator some years ago, and she said that generally my work lives in someone's closet collection for 25 years, then it goes to a museum. And so I officially been in business since 1986. And so I'm a little bit ahead of the game because my first piece went into the LA County Museum in 91. So it's nice to have that on your resume. And you know, I don't trot it out very often, but when I have to, I do. I'm very proud of it. Oh, it's so impressive all those museums and the Victorian Albert Museum. I know, yeah, it's good. Because anyone who goes to visit London who loves museums, they go to the, the B&A. They without do. Without a yes, doubt, do. yeah. So the hats. Yes. What would you like to know? Okay, so there was the Diet Coke ad. Your hat was in there. We can start now and work back. John Lewis, the retailer in the UK. Yes, the Elton John, it was the 2019, the holiday ad. And about 30 seconds in, he's sitting at a dressing table and he puts on his glasses and that hat, that's one of mine. And I was so pleased about that because I didn't have a photo of that particular hat. I could tell you that was made, I was still in the 8th Street studio, so that was probably early 1989. He started ordering early and the Diet Coke commercial, it was called Nightclub. And I remember when that commercial came out because... It caused a firestorm of controversy because they had Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney. People were just shocked and horrified that they were using dead film stars to sell soda. But that hat was ordered lipstick red. They were very specific about the color. And everything else is like, go for it, but lipstick red. That was the, there was the Diet Coke commercial. There was the video for the song Sacrifice. The hat and the jacket are mine. Then there is You Gotta Love Someone, the white hat, that's mine. And then there is an animation for the song Club at the End of the Street. And it's one of my hats and one of my vests interpreted for animation. The sales lady that used to sell to him, she figures he has over 100 pieces. And he has the good stuff. He was wonderful to work for. I got to meet him. I went to a couple concerts. And it was just lovely, lovely, lovely. When there was the earthquake in 89, and a few months before is when I got to meet him, and he ordered four hats, the new style that I was wearing. And so I think it was a day or two after the earthquake, I had just sent off the hats, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was his people. And I thought, oh, no, something's wrong with the hats. Something happened to the hats. I was kind of off on what happened to the hats. And she said, well, how are you doing? And I said, well, fine, thanks to you, because I was... I was waiting for the other shoe to drop, like, okay, did they get damaged? Do they hate that? You know, I was all off in that, that whole mindset. And she said, well, there was an earthquake, and he wanted us to call and see if you were okay or see Aww. if you needed anything. And I said, well, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, there was that earthquake. Yeah, oops. So, yeah, it was lovely. And it got better because we had just rented what I called the Howard Street Studios, the big fancy studio. And, I mean, literally, four o'clock, I sent the lease over, and five o'clock, the earthquake hit. Phew, yeah. And so we were going to have a big party, so I said, you'll get invitations to the big party, thinking they're not going to come. So a couple days before the party, I was at the studio, and 
they called and said he really wanted to come, but he sends his apologies. And I said, well, that's lovely. You didn't have to do that. I so totally understand. And then the day of the party, my mother who came from Oklahoma for the event, my mother who wanted me to be a pharmacist when I grew up, I was at the studio. She was at home with my sister getting ready. And I went to the studio. There was a message from a florist. So I called them and said, you know, yes, come at this time. And the guy paused and he said, well, don't you want to know who it's from? And I was just goofing. I said, oh, it's probably from Elton. And he's like, damn, I wanted to tell you. I said, well, okay. So we you know, went back, got my mom, got her back to the studio, doorbell rang. They brought up this bouquet that was gigantic and gorgeous. You know, I was trying to be blasé. I'm like, sit it over, oh, sit it over there. Mom, why don't you look at the card? You know, I was trying to act like this happens every day. And she read the card. I have the card to this day. It said, Dear Kenny. Now, he's the only other person besides my mother who could call me that. I know. Congratulations on your studio opening. Thanks for everything. Sorry I couldn't be there. Love, Elton. I thought my mother was going to pass out. And that night, she was playing Queen Mother. And, you know, she was showing everyone, you know, that rock stars sent her son flowers. And at one point, I heard her say to a group of people, you know... I have always encouraged my children to follow their dreams. <laughs> I'm like, what happened to my mother? You're an imposter. So yeah, no one can say anything bad about him. He's one of those customers that I'm just so proud to have gotten to work with. And your work is in his collection, his personal yes. collection. Yes. Just as good as being in the V&A Museum. Better, actually. Better? Yeah. I, well, it's different, you know, but still, it's, yeah, I'm very, I'm very proud of it. It's good that Miss Anne actually said that to a crowd in front of you. Yes, yes. She really wanted me to be a pharmacist. Mm. And I think when she got to see, this is where he's at, this is Big Diggs, he's got nice people there, people sending him flowers. I think she kind of got it that, yeah, I had made the right choice after all, because she was always kind of wondering about my choices in life. But parents sometimes don't understand their children's choices. And as a seller... I'm really thankful that you chose to be a sewing specialist and a sewing educator. I've never been to any of your courses, but I've loved watching you on Craftsy. But, you know, the whole teaching thing, I sort of fell into that. It was Sandra Betsina who really got the ball rolling because Marcy Tilton, who had the sewing workshop at the time, used to do these studio tours, and my studio partner knew her husband. And she brought this group through, and Sandra was in the group, so Sandra just started nagging her, Marcy, he should teach a class. Marcy, he should teach a class. And finally, she said, okay. And, you know, it grew from there. It was not something I had planned. But when you're self-employed, one of the things you want to do is have multiple revenue streams. Because if you have multiple revenue streams, if one stream dries up, it's inconvenient, but it's not catastrophic. And you can also say no when you need to. I just showed up and started teaching and talking about what I did. And I'm fortunate that even now, a little bit kind of astonished that it kind of turned out this way because I didn't set out to be famous doing this. I just set out to, okay, I like talking about the craft. I like investigating the craft and writing about the craft. And it has worked out very well for me. I'm very honored that people think I know something and would like to listen to me talk about it. And to watch as well. And I like how when you've done the crafty classes, you put yourself into it to the point where you've got arrows pointing to where the top or the bottom of something is. And that's really helped me with my sewing so that I don't mess up my project. 
Well, you know, a lot of people, and when I teach, especially at FIT, you know, the students, you know, they're still kind of finding their way. And what I say to them is, there's no shame in marking which way's up. There are times in a garment, sometimes if, if you looked inside my garment, you would see up, center, front. I'm slightly dyslexic. Mm -hmm. And so there are certain things I consistently do yeah. so that I don't get turned around. And when I'm either writing an article or teaching a class or, or, you know, that sort of thing. Way back when I did Sewing Today, that was my first TV thing in 1994 with Nancy Fleming, former Miss America, 1961, her talent was sewing. She was lovely. She was lovely. I understood completely why she was Miss America. She was so lovely to me. She could have not helped me a bit. She was sweet and lovely and taught me how to be on TV. But one of the things that we really tried to do was when we were going through the instruction, my question to the cameraman was, did you get that? And, you know, these are guys who don't sew. And if I lost them, I'd say, okay, let's back up to where we lost you and go forward and try it another way. So one thing I try to do is I try to look at it with the eye towards what would I need to see being on the other side what would I need to see? What is that kernel of information that is going to make it work? Because I'm very big on repeatable and reliable. And that's something when I teach my students, especially the couture construction class, there are certain things I teach. And my students say, why didn't anyone else teach us this? I said, well, you know, maybe they didn't know. But, you know, there are different ways of doing something. I have certain ways I prefer because I know they work repeatably and reliably. So when I teach, that's what I want because I I'm all for getting in the weeds about an esoteric technique for myself to research it. But when it comes to actually, you can see part of what I have to do when I'm sewing for other people is I have to make money at it. And so I need to know, like, for example, a welt pocket. I need to know a way that it goes in first time perfectly. I move on. I don't want to have to worry about recutting. I don't want to have to worry that sick feeling in the pit of my stomach, oh, please, oh, please, God, let this work. Don't want to do that. So yeah, repeatable, reliable, so that I'm always gratified when I have people send me an email saying, I tried this method on such and such, and it worked so well, and I was able to, for the first time, I was able to do a double well pocket. It's good. It's gratifying. So for someone who is trying to get their head around a welt pocket, a double welt pocket, single, mm -hmm. what would your advice to them be? Well, I would say there is an excellent class on Craftsy by this guy named Kenneth D. King about pockets. Mm -hmm. Because really, the single welt pocket, the double welt pocket, those work every time. I know other ways of doing it, and this is the way I do it because I know that it's going to work every time. I've never seen it fail. And the other thing is I would say practice. And I tell my students this. If I have a fabric that I have not put a well pocket in. In January, we did the Velveteen class on Craftsy, and I was a little disappointed because I really wanted to put a double well pocket in that jacket. But they said, well, you know, the pattern has a patch pocket. I'm like, okay. So I had not put a double well pocket in Velveteen, and I just wanted to see. And so I had some extra fabric, and I did my double well pocket, and it turned out great. So, you know, it's always good to have extra and see, I have what I call the five-yard rule. I will not buy under five yards. If I'm buying blind, if I see a piece of fabric that I really like, it's five yards. Because you're going to have plenty to do whatever you need to do. You know, also, you have a little extra to experiment. Is this fabric going to take a well pocket? You know, you could try do different samples. So, you know, it's, 
I just found that it's the good number. I think you've sold me on the five-yard rule, just to practice, yeah, and not ruin what I'm trying to do. Well, and also, especially if a customer is buying the fabric. I had a customer who, <laughs> she called me from the Fortuny showroom in Venice. She's on her cell phone. You know, lovely gal, voice like a rusty hinge. Kenneth, this is Jane. I'm in the Fortuny showroom. How much do I need for a jacket? <laughs> and I was like thinking, hmm. And I said, five meters, Jean, five meters. She said, how much do you need for a pair of jeans? And I said, another two meters would do it. So she bought seven meters of this zillion dollar yard fabric. And I wanted to make sure I had enough because she was quite asymmetrical. And I just decided I want to build in. And she was saying, oh, just cut it out of the fabric is sewed up. I said, no, Jean, we're doing muslins because <laughs> $600 a meter, we're not just going to use this as our muslin. We're going to you know, we're going to test it first. Yeah, you were doing her a favor of not wasting yes. all the fabric that she bought. So, you know, she got her jacket. I got my jeans. My husband got a pair of board shorts. I think there's a little more of it rattling around in my stash. Is that the same Fortuny fabric that you used to make your mask with? That was a different one. The, the one that I was working on for her, it was a, a double print. That's why it was $600 a meter. The one that I made my mask out of, my husband did a interior design job in San Francisco in 2014. One of his clients from here was moving there. And at first, he was when he told me they were moving, he was kind of bummed. I said, well, sweetie, why don't you just handle their move? And he said, well, I don't really know anyone in San Francisco. I said, sweetie, I lived there for 23 years. I could make some phone calls. Tell them you're going to handle their move. So he went there, and they had to look at the house. And there were 10 windows of Fortuny curtains. So, of course, my question was, are they going to leave those there? Or are they going to take them with me? He said, I don't know. I said, okay, if they're, if they're there, when you take possession, they're mine. You put them in a box, you send them to New York. So the first day they get in, there's this big pile of these curtains on the floor. Ding dong, doorbell rings. It's the former lady of the house. And he said, oh, no, you should have taken them when you moved. We have plans for those curtains. And I, I said, that was exactly right, sweetie. He didn't tell her the plans were box them up and send them to New York. That was the fabric that I made the mask out of. I ended up with 60 yards of that fabric. There were two colors, 30 yards each. He said that probably wholesale for about 400 a yard. Because see, most people who come to my studio, you know, they don't know what it is. So, but yeah, I do love the Fortuny. Fortuny is how I met my husband. Did I ever tell you that story? No. Okay, there is an embroidery house called Penn and Fletcher. I did an article about them for Threads Magazine. And I have known Ernie at Penn and Fletcher for years and years. So my first Fortuny that I got to have a lavish amount of Fortuny, it was at FIT, one of my colleagues in, in the adjunct office. She had this bolt. It was 80 yards, 8-0, 80 yards. And it was leaning against her desk. And at first I thought, that just can't be Fortuny. It had the printed border on the selvage, but I thought, that just can't be. How could, she, how could that find its way here? And so I went over and I enrolled it. There were the little stamps on the selvage, Fortuny Venice. And I said, Juliet, do you know what this is? She said, no. I said, this is Fortuny. She said, okay, whatever. I said, okay, Juliet, <laughs> I like you. And so I'm going to tell you, this is a big deal. This is Fortuny. And she said, oh, just take it. I'm never going to make it up. So I threw that damn bolt over my shoulder and I ran. So the first thing I did was to make myself a pair of jeans because I could, because I had 80 yards of this stuff. My students couldn't believe that I was wearing jeans. And one of them said, well, what happens if you get a tear? I said, I'll just make another pair. I have 80 yards of this. So Ernie had a luncheon for a visiting dignitary from London. And so he sent kind of out the general announcement. So I thought, okay, embroidery, food. 
free. Okay, I'm in. So I looked good that day. I had on this really great jacket, my black cashmere turtleneck, and my new Fortuny jeans, and my red boots, and my Ferragamo sunglasses. And the doors of the elevator open, and I took off, and it's funny to hear the other star of it, but I, I took off my sunglasses, and I walked in. This rather nice-looking man walked up, and he said, is that real Fortuny? And I looked at him, and I said, as a matter of fact, it is. Who are you? And that was his opening line. What was funny is so a year, a year or so later, I heard it from the other side, and he was there, and he was helping Ernie, and you know, and he said, and all of a sudden, elevator door opened, and this guy took walked out and took off his sunglasses, and he said it was like the, that scene of The Devil Wears Prada when you finally see her, and he said, I thought to myself, and who is that? And so, yeah, so, yeah, I wore Fortuny on my wedding day. I could see it from your husband's point of view. I was looking good. That was one of those days when, you know, the hair was good and everything was good. So yeah, I wore Fortuny on my wedding day and I had Fortuny shoes made because I did the article on Fortuny and the people at Fortuny said, because I was telling him, I, I want to buy some Fortuny for my wedding day. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, if you make me a pair of board shorts out of our new camouflage pattern at $475 a yard wholesale, I'll give you your wedding fabric. And I said, why? I think that works for me. So it was a trade. And another friend gave me an antique Irish linen damask tablecloth that had never been out of the package. That was the shirt. The jacket I found, it was vintage. It was uh, Georgia San Angelo. I found it in Baltimore. So that was 12 bucks. So I could afford to have the shoes made. And I had the shoes made from, it was a blue, a blue ground on the Fortuny. So I had, it was the Fortuny and it was a blue leather. Yeah, it was good. So yeah, Fortuny. I love Fortuny. I'm just blown away by the whole Fortuny <laughs> experience. And it's it's sort of added to your, your life, really. It did. Well, you know, my first introduction to Fortuny was in college. I came here to New York on a college study tour, and we did a thing. We went to the Met, the costume collection at the Met. I remember they opened this cabinet, and they still kept the Fortuny gowns in the little boxes at the time. And it was this little hat box. It was, if I remember correctly, it was like ivory lacquer paper with black trim and black Fortuny Venice on it. And the dresses are twisted and coiled like a rope and stored in the boxes. I just remember thinking those were the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. So, you know, Fortuny is something I've always, he's definitely been an influence throughout the years. Can we go back to where you talked about your client was asymmetrical? And I suppose the reason I want to get your views on that is because a lot of people have to fit themselves. And when they're in their 20s, you know, everything fits perfectly out of the packet. But as you get older, your body shape changes. Do you have any advice for people who are struggling with fitting themselves because their bodies are now asymmetrical? What I would say is have a very limited range of patterns. Have a good jacket that fits, have a good blouse that fits, have a good skirt that fits, have a good trouser that fits, and you know maybe another piece or two, maybe a good coat, and then make them in different fabrics and change the collar, change the pockets, change you know short sleeve, long sleeve. See, a lot of people, I understand people despair about fit because like this gal, she had a lot of challenges. She had one shoulder was lower than the other. She had a she was a little bit round at the nape of the neck. Yeah. She had had a partial mastectomy, so she was asymmetrical that way. It was a challenge. But one of the things, if you get something that fits properly, you don't notice the asymmetry. If you get something that fits properly, you automatically look well in your clothes. 
It's only when they don't fit that people are not happy with how they look. And so what I would say is invest in the time. And if you have to find some help, you can do a little research to find someone to help you with it. It's really difficult to do it yourself. And spend the time and spend a little money to get just a few patterns that fit you beautifully. And then make them in all different fabrics, you know, solids. Because if you have these patterns that fit you beautifully, you're going to look well in your clothes. And then you can spend on the accessories. As you said, once the pattern fits, you can do it in any type of fabric. And maybe the only challenge then might be the fabric type that you're using, not the fit. Yes. Well, what I found is there are certain garments that I, and the first time I kind of realized this, I made a wool crepe jacket. This is when I was selling to Los Angeles. And the wool crepe felt bigger than the same jacket in Gabardine. So there are a little bit of variations for the kinds of fabrics. You know, like, for example, you would, if you're going to make a pair of jeans, you have a pattern that fits for stretch jeans and a pattern that fits for non-stretch jeans. I have a prejudice against Lycra. I don't like stretch denim. It's hard to find non-stretch denim. I have a friend who works in the industry, and see, I always thought I was just stupid, so I didn't know. And I asked her one day, her thing is stretch. That is her expertise. That's what she's made her fortune on. And we get into these conversations about wearing ease for stretch and, you know, all of this. And she said that stretch wovens are notoriously unpredictable. What you do is you buy twice as much as you need. You can make a wearable muslin, but you have to test in the same fabric. You can have the same fabric from two different mills. It has the same specifications, but it is not the same fabric. But spend the time, spend a little money to get just a limited library of patterns. And then you can really go forth with long sleeve, short sleeve, jacket shorter, jacket a little longer, collar, no collar. And you can then have a little fun with your sewing instead of always wrestling with fit. It becomes a better experience both while you're making something and then when you eventually wear it. Oh, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Kenneth, on your website, you've got such a range of books that you've written yourself. Did you want to give our listeners a bit of an idea on what drove you to write the books? Okay. Well, you know, my first book that was published was called Designer Techniques. I called it My Adventure in Publishing. I'm not going to go into the weeds too much on that, but I learned a tremendous amount. And so in 2002, because I studied pattern making in 1990 with a woman named Simone, she trained at the Ecole Guerre-Levine in Paris. And anyone who's been in any classes with me has heard about Simone. Simone graduated second in her class at the Ecole Guerre-Levine. She had her certificates from the Chambre Syndicale in Couture Pattern Making. She moved to the United States and she got her immigration based on all her education. They likened it to a master's degree. And even though I don't have a piece of paper for that, I regard that as my master's degree because she trained as she was trained. So I learned from her. If she liked you, you got more work. And she liked me, so she, uh, and there were days, you know, there were days. Yes, there were days. And so anyway, and really, she made a lot possible. The knowledge, I'm standing on her shoulders. The knowledge that I got from her is, in my mind, more valuable than my bachelor's degree because it made me understand that it really is all about fit and it starts with the moulage, which is a system of measurements that you take of the figure. It's like, it's like a geometry problem. I have never seen it fail. Never seen it fail. There's only two times I had to make 
two muslins on a melange, and both of them were for wildly asymmetrical women. Everyone else, you never have to make a second muslin, it just fits. And I've gotten to where I can measure, calculate, draft it, make it a muslin, sip it up in about an hour. So it's a, an efficient way of getting there. And then from there, in this particular book, the PDF book, I show how to get the slopers. And then you can use the slopers to adjust commercial patterns. Simone used to say that, oh, no, no one, would, no one can learn anything from a book. And I beg to differ. I learned quite a lot from books. In June of 2002, that was the first time in my business I had not had anything on the books. And so there was a part of me that was saying, okay, you can panic or you can do something that's going to plant seeds that will grow money later. And so I had to learn the computer, and I did the moulage and the basic sleeve were my first PDF books. And so what I did with the pattern making is to systematically put in PDF book form what I learned from my teacher. That's the foundation of it. Then there are others like Taylor Jacket, Birth of a Bustier, Embellishment, Techniques books. There, I want to say 15 in all. There's, and pattern making one and two are the notes for my classes at FIT. So it's a way of people getting some information. What I love about a PDF book is you're not limited by the physical structure of a book. I can have as many pages. I can have as many illustrations. Like, for example, the Taylor Jacket PDF. There are 338 photos. How I know is I photograph them all. I Photoshop them all. I put them into the book form. Now, the, graphically, they're not brilliant, but... The PDF book, there's, uh, let's see, there's Designer Techniques was my first one. Then there was a Designer Bead Embroidery, which I put out in 2006. There's Cool Couture, which came out in 2008. And then there is Smart Fitting Solutions that came out in 2017. You know, it's kind of, it's so funny because my students at FIT, I don't think sometimes they actually Google to see who I am and what I do. <laughs> I had one student one day. She would say, Professor, could you like recommend like a sewing book that I could use? And I said, well, you know, there's this really great book by this guy named Kenneth D. King that you can get in a bookstore. And she said, you have a book out? I said, well, four if you count the French edition. So, you know, I have published books you know, and then I have the PDF books. It's a different way of getting out the information. Now what I'm looking at is online classes, you know, because I'm teaching the embellishment class, the couture embellishments by T. And so I have to do it for them. And so what I'm doing is I'm just designing these as a class that I can take parts of it and use it at FIT. And so I'm figuring out, okay, where can I sell this now? So that's you know, something else that I'm working on. And that's really good because the books are a fabulous resource. And then I have the DVDs from Threads for Taunt Press. There's the, the fitting DVD. There's the fur sewing DVD. There's garment construction order one and two. And, oh God, there's a tailoring one. And the videos for Threads Magazine. I always like to shout out Judy Newcomb from Threads Magazine. Yes. She is an unsung hero. What I loved about Judy and what I have learned from her that I've taken forward into the videos that I'm working on now is her whole thing is say what you're doing. You're not doing it, you're sewing it. You're not doing it, you're pressing it. She's very good about use the language to tell what you're doing while you're showing what you're doing. The other thing that she taught me with videos is people don't want to see your talking face. They want to see the sewing. In these videos, I have the intro and the outro, but the rest of it, you don't see my face. You see my hands, which is really what you want because that's what you're there for. You want to see the technique. You want to see the technique and you're describing what the technique is. Yes. And that's thanks to Judith. 
Yes. So, you know, at some point, she might be an interesting guest to have on. She's hilarious. I mean, not only does she have an encyclopedic knowledge of sewing, she's hilarious. Fingers crossed. I'll get her on okay. one day. Okay. Thanks for the recommendation. Tell her, I, tell her I told you to. Thank you again. Look, I feel very grateful that you've given me your time for So Organised Style Podcast. I'm so grateful that you've given me your time today. Well, it's my pleasure because one of the things I... People sometimes say to me, I can't believe you're telling your secrets. And what I say to them is, this is technique. You know, mm. if I teach something, that doesn't mean I don't know it anymore. That means two people know it or three or how many ever. And so, you know, I think helping each other to raise everything up is just going to create more for everybody. And that is something that I think is a good thing. Yeah. And I'm really pleased that on a global level, we can do that. And we can do it mm -hmm. so much more easily now with Instagram with YouTube videos and with basic podcasting as well as good old time blogging. Yeah, you're very kind to say that. Thank you so much, Kenneth. My pleasure. This episode of Sew Organised Style Podcast for the Australian Sewing Guild was produced by me, Maria Thea Harris, with permission of Kenneth D. King, sound by bensound.com. You can subscribe to Sew Organised Style Podcast, spelt with an S, not a Z, on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google, and from all good podcast distributors. Post any questions or podcast suggestions you have on our podcast Instagram account or on our Facebook page. We look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone.